0: So as we considered last week, Stephen is on trial for his life. He was one of seven men chosen to help navigate the complexities of a church that was growing very rapidly day by day more than ever people were being added to the church. 3,000 at one time, a minimum of 5,000 at another time, and then just on and on and on, despite beatings and despite imprisonment and despite uh, (laughs) legislation saying, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus has continued to go forth in power. The church has only continued to grow. And so Stephen was was elected to be one of the men to help just with the day-to-day activities. And he came under fire. He defended the name of Jesus, and now he is on trial for his life. And what we looked at last week is that he's, he's been accused by the council of, of four basic things. And that's blasphemy of God, blasphemy of Moses, speaking blasphemy of the temple, and speaking blasphemy of the law. Those are the four things that they bring against him. That's in chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 5, verse 13 and what we considered last week is that he opens up the scriptures and he defends himself and and Addresses each of those accusations one by one he addressed That he's not a God blasphemer and he addressed that he's not blaspheming Moses by venerating the name of God and by venerating the name of Moses and by showing in the Scriptures the good things that God has done, how God has continued to be faithful to Israel despite their rejection of Moses and their rejection of Joseph and and their rejection even of the law, and we're going to consider that tonight. But he says in verse five, he gave them, and verse five, he promised verse 6 he spoke verse 8 he gave verse 9 yet God was with him Joseph was sold into Egypt and yet God was with him he elevates and venerates the name of God again and again and again he says right here in verse 2 at the very beginning of his opening remarks he calls God the God of glory which is a direct quote from the Psalms he quotes Psalms 29.3. He's not a God blasphemer. He's not a Moses blasphemer. And we closed last week pointing out that he was lifting up the name of Moses as he has continued to show through the Old Testament which he just knew off the top of his head. And man, that's, that, that is just so convicting to me. I want to be... A man whether I work at UPS or I'm a preacher I want to be a man who knows the Word of God and I mean not just like have it memorized and the drop of a hat even whenever the moment is intense I can just spout it off and we see Stephen being an example to that he was being an example of that to us and so then he, he goes into the story of Moses as he continues the story of Israel Moses is one who was lifted up Moses was, re- was rejected but he returned again as the redeemer. He was the one who led Israel out of Egyptian slavery. He speaks of Joseph who was rejected, God's anointed who was rejected, and yet he came back as a redeemer and led his family and the people back into Egypt where they had food during a famine. So what Stephen is doing is he's pointing out an example after an example after an example of times that Israel in their history has rejected the Lord's anointed but then that one was, was then chosen, or that one was still, in spite of the rejection, used to bring life to the people of Israel. And so starting in verse 35 and following, this, this Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge of us? This is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. I, I almost forgot one last point that I want to make. If you're a, if you're a student of the Bible, if you're a note taker, have your pen ready because everything that Stephen is going to say up until verse 53 is directly connected to the Old Testament and you can find chapter and verse and read the story for yourself. And I'm going to tell you every step along the way where this Where what Stephen is describing is located in scripture and I talk fast and we've got to get through this before midnight So if you miss something if if I say something and you don't hear it or you don't get written it down in time I have all these notes printed and if you want them, please come and ask me and I will give them to you For free just come and ask the verses are yours and you can and you can see how all of this is laid out If you have a study Bible, you're already there. So don't even worry about it. But anyways moving on verse 36 so this man this Moses this man led them out, doing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So what's being described here, the Red Sea, it's Exodus chapter 14. Moses did signs and wonders. He's the one who is rejected. Verse 35, you, who made you ruler and judge over us? That's what they said to him in verse 27 when, when Moses thought that because he, remember, he killed the Egyptian who was mistreating one of his, one of his Hebrew brothers. And he thought, hey, people are gonna know that I'm here to help them out. But it was the very people of Israel who pushed him away. They thrust him to the side and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? This same Moses. He led them out doing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Wonders and signs, all sorts of things Moses did. Exodus chapter seven is a really, really weird one. Exodus chapter seven, verses eight and following. Moses cast down his staff, was well his brother Aaron did, and it becomes a serpent, and then Pharaoh's magicians cast down their staff, and it becomes a serpent, but Aaron's serpent ate the other serpent. This is one of the reasons why we don't just blatantly, blindly believe every miracle that we might see because miracles are intended to lead to repentance and lead to the name of Jesus being lifted up. The devil can fabricate miraculous wonders, but Moses did sign and wonder after sign and wonder. These, the people of Israel saw the 10 plagues, executed one after the other. They, I mean, good grief, they saw the Red Sea part. If you don't know that story, mark it down, Exodus chapter 14, read it. The story of the Red Sea parting. Moses did this, God did this through Moses, leading them through the wilderness for 40 years. In verse thirty-seven, this is the Moses, who said to the sons of Israel, "God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers." That's Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, and we see this throughout Scripture. A prophet like me, but a prophet better than Moses. In John chapter six, a very famous story, the feeding of the five thousand, Jesus is on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there's thousands who are following him. We know from the Gospel of Matthew that it was 5,000 men plus women and children. Most scholars put the number at about 20,000 people, and Jesus miraculously fed them with a little boy's sack lunch. And when he did that, people were stoked. They just got a free lunch, and they were hyped on Jesus, and they start yelling and screaming, and they and they lifted Jesus up. And, went, and it says in chapter six of the Gospel of John, verse fourteen: Therefore, when the people saw this sign that he had done, they were saying, "This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world." And while their understanding of Jesus was yet incomplete, they were absolutely correct about that. This one like Moses, this one greater than Moses. Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. Acts chapter 7, verse 37. Moses said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, from the people of Israel. Verse 38. This is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness was with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received living oracles to pass on to you. This is the giving of the law. This is, Mo- this is Stephen's rebuttal to the accusation. This is his answering to the accusation that he has blasphemed the law. They accuse him of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple. He's, he's answered about the accusation to God. He's answered to the accusation of blaspheming Moses. And now he's, now he's answering to the, the accusation that he has blasphemed the, the law itself. God, Moses, and the law. This is the one who is the con- in, the, in the congregation in the wilderness with the angels, speaking through him on Mount Sinai. That's the giving of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and receives the written law. Who received, Stephen says, living oracles to pass on to you. That speaks two things. Obviously, Two things that we have time for. One is that this is what Stephen thought of the word of God. This is what Stephen thought of the law. It wasn't just some arbitrary rules that God sort of just picked out of the air and, and made up for us to follow because he felt like it. They're the living oracles of God because God's word is living and active. Most, most notably we've seen in Jesus himself, the word of God who has become flesh and dwelt among us. Living oracles of God. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if, if you've ever read the Bible with even a modicum of, of integrity and honesty, you know that the Bible's argued with you, right? You ever experienced that? You ever read the Bible and it says something that you don't want to hear? Tells you that you got to make a choice. It is really a difficult choice to make. You don't want to. It doesn't feel good, but it's the right thing to do. The, the Bible gets in our business. Jesus gets in our business. He tells us how to live. And he instructs us. It's very simple. It's not always easy, but it's very simple. I would say off the top of my head, 90% of the counsel that I have given at Door of Hope, when single individuals have come to me and had a question about something. I don't mean single relation. I just mean individual people who come to me and have a question about some complexity. 90% of the time it's like 1 Corinthians 5 9. There it is. It's right there. And people go, yeah, but you know, I but I don't like that. It's like, well, that's not the point. I know it's not easy, but it's very simple. The word of God is living and active, and my goodness, does it not get into our business. And friends, it's not arbitrary, it's not malicious, it's not mean. The way that God intends and and instructs us to live is not only in line with his character of who he is, but it's also just the best way for us to live. It's the best advice. It's more than advice, but it's at least the best advice to live it's the best advice to be heeded. it is the way that is the most expedient and helpful for us to live what the Bible tells us to do and the Bible tells us to believe to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved verse 39 but our fathers living oracles but our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him hint hint they were unwilling our fathers were unwilling to be obedient in, implying you have also been disobedient, but he's gonna really lay that down in a little while. They were unwilling to be obedient to him and they rejected him and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. You know, there's, there's so much that can be said about this. I almost, I almost am feeling in this very moment like I should have split this sermon into two different sermons, but here we go. In their hearts they turned back to Egypt. You know, they thrust Moses aside Verse 27, they said, who made you ruler and judge over us? They just, they rejected God's anointed. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They complained time and time again. They, re- they complained in Exodus chapter 14 because, oh, you brought us out here to the desert? I don't want to mock them. I don't want to have a sarcastic tone because I'm an idiot. So like, who am I to make fun of anybody? But they, they complained at the Red Sea. You brought us out here to die. You should have left us in Egypt. They complained in verse 16, you've brought us out into the wilderness to die of hunger. They complain in verse 17, you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. They were disobedient, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Verse 41, and at that time they made a calf and they brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So they are unwilling to be obedient. They reject Moses. They reject Yahweh. They make a golden calf. They turn in their hearts back to Egypt. And, and you know, the, the, probably the most obvious example of that in scripture, and I'd love to take 15 minutes and talk about it is, is Judas I mean that's such a tragic story a man who and I don't mean to be irreverent but somebody said this to me one time and I thought well that's actually a helpful way of thinking about it because it just makes it real this is a guy who knew what Jesus's breath smelled like you know like they camped together they lived together they cooked together they traveled together they were intimate they were close they were kin Jesus picked him on purpose he was that close but in his heart he was never with Jesus there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 5 of one of the prophets of Israel that heals um, a Gentile of leprosy. And his apprentice, Gehazi, goes for the money. This Gentile comes to the prophet and says, I will give you money, heal me of my leprosy. And the prophet says, keep your money. You don't buy this sort of thing. Go into the water and wash, and you'll be clean. And his apprentice runs after the Gentile named Naaman and says, actually, you know what? We do kind of want some of that money. And that Gehazi, that apprentice, is struck with leprosy for his heart turning back towards Egypt, so to speak. It's, it's a very pernicious and easy mistake to make that we're sitting in church, we're in the pews, and so we think we're good, but where, where is your heart? We've been talking about this for weeks now in the morning service. It's not that you pray or that you give or that you fast or that you anything else. Where is your heart? Is it in Egypt, so to speak? Is it against God? Is it in line with the devil? Or are you actually a believer in Jesus Christ, born again? Those are questions I can't answer for you. I can just bring it up because it's in the text. Paul warns us in his letter to the Corinthians to test ourselves and see if we're actually in the faith. The people of Israel turned against Yahweh. They made a golden calf. They were celebrating the work of their hands, which is exactly what the Tower of Babel was, Genesis chapter 11, this, this monument of, of human achievement, this, this sort of simultaneous self-worship, and also look at what we can do. Look at how awesome we are, look at how cool we are. We're gonna make a name for ourselves. And it was, it was a, it, God couldn't let us believe that we are self-sufficient. We need someone more than us. And so he confused the languages in Babel. And what we see in the opening book, of, in the opening chapters of Acts at Pentecost is that this is a reversal of Babel. This is a kingdom that's being built, not with human prowess, not with human ingenuity or education or anything else, and certainly not with sword or spear or javelin or war, but with repentance and with surrender to King Jesus as he builds his kingdom in a way that makes absolutely no sense to us. But yet, as we've seen in weeks past, the kingdom of God, the church, the kingdom of God in part is continuing to grow. But they turned away from God and they built a calf. They had a calf made. They worshiped the work of their hands. Verse 42. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you present me with slain beasts and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rampha, or of Riphon, depending on your, your translation. The images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Some of, some of the most terrifying words, God, god turned them over. He turned away and he delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. We see the same language in Romans chapter 1 verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. He left them to their consequences. Sometimes sometimes God's wrath is just letting you go. It's just letting you do your thing and facing the consequences of your actions. And he did that. He let them go their way to serve the host of heaven. Of heaven, and that's the sun, the moon, and the stars. You read that and you're like, wait, the host of heaven kind of sounds like a good thing. I thought serving the host of heaven was what we we're supposed to do. But again, Stephen's quoting from the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy 4.19. The sun, the moon, and the stars. Deuteronomy 4.19 says, Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, and you be drawn away and you bow down to them and serve them. And we might think, well, that's kind of silly, bowing down to the sun, the moon, and the stars, but humans are capable of it. Verse 40, make, did you not make gods who will go before us, the calf? Verse 42, well, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself. God of Rampha, the images which you made to worship, I will also remove you from beyond Babylon. And this is, this is giving them over. This was the natural consequence of their actions. You can read this in Second Kings chapter 17 and Second Kings chapter 25. The natural outcome was an exile to Assyria, exile to Babylon. This is an, actually a direct quote from Amos chapter 5 verse, verses 25 through 27. The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC wiped him out blood spear javelin sword murder rape enslavement the whole thing after King Saul David and Solomon Israel split up into two kingdoms ten, ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south and in 722 the whole northern kingdom all ten tribes were wiped out and enslaved And in 568 BC, the same thing happened to the southern kingdom, Judah, when Babylon came in and wiped them out and took them into captivity. Stephen is saying the oracles of God, the living oracles, the law, it is good. I'm not blaspheming the law. I'm not blaspheming Moses. I'm not blaspheming God. The law is good, and it should be upheld, but our ancestors (laughs) didn't do that, and they faced the consequences of their actions. Verse 44, our fathers who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according uh, to excuse me, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen and having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. So our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony. Verse 44, so now he's He's approaching the accusation that he has blasphemed against the temple or against the tabernacle, and he's saying, no, I did not. And and what we're going to see is that he's saying, I have not blasphemed the temple. I have not blasphemed the tabernacle. The tabernacle is right and it's good, but it also has its time and place. It was temporary, and you guys have made the mistake of basically worshiping the tabernacle in and of itself. You have worshiped the actual stone and steps and roofing and building the structure itself you have worshiped and that is a misstep that is wrong but he has not blasphemed against the temple itself our fathers had the, taber- the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness this is exodus 25 chapter 25 through chapter 31 the the very Detailed, the minutia of the tabernacle is laid out: how it is to be built, every color of metal, every color of thread, everything, every lamp, every vase, every burning of incense. Everything is laid out in detail. And what's going on in the Old Testament? This is beautiful because a lot of people don't don't see this, they don't know this. They they read the Old Testament, they read the building of the tabernacle, and they're like, so many cubits by so many cubits, and gold and purple and linen, and my goodness. Revelation is so much more exciting than this and I get it But but an easy thing to miss is what's happening with the construction of the temple is again It's at least two things one is that The temple is the manifest physical representation of God's presence with the people all of those 40 years that they were in the desert Every, all of the years that they were complaining and whining about being left for dead, they should have been left in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die of thirst and die of hunger? The Lord actually supplied all of those needs, and the temple was a representation of his presence with them every moment, every day. Pillar of fire, cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, he was with them. The temple was a manifestation, but it was also an instruction saying that you can't just come to God willy nilly, there is the problem of sin. And you can't just barge into the presence of God. He is perfect, he is righteous, he is holy. And so there's a tier system, there's representatives, there's priests, there's high priests, there's people who stand between Almighty God and the people and all of the blood that was shed, all of the sacrifices, every animal killed, every food offering, every grain offering, all of it was representing that there needs to be some sort of recompense, some sort of payment for the sin, for the, for the chasm that is between us and God. And Jesus fulfilled that in full. That's why he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood of bulls and rams cannot actually take away sin. Jesus could. But the temple is a representation of that. And that's why the temple was temporary, because Jesus replaced it. He is is much better than the temple. The days of the temple are gone. In AD 70, the temple was actually completely destroyed. Rome tore it to the ground and then set it on fire so all of the gold in between the stones would melt and they could collect it. The temple was no more. But what's also interesting is that Exodus 25 through 31, the description of the temple being built, they had it. They had the representation. They had had the manifest representation of God's presence there with them. And his presence actually was in the inner court. His presence was in the Holy of Holies. But then it's in Exodus 32 that they built the golden calf. It's in Exodus 32 that Moses goes up on the mountain. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And these people must, and again, I don't want to make fun of them, but sometimes it's like, how, guys, how short was your memory? Like, you saw the 10 plagues. You put the blood on the doorpost of your house. You saw the Red Sea part. You saw all of these miracles. You walked across, like, on dry land, and then the water collapsed on the Egyptians, and Moses is gone for a month and some change, and you're like, ah, screw them, let's build a calf. It's weird, but it does speak to how fickle our hearts are. They had the temple. Exodus 31, they have the temple. Exodus 32, they have a golden calf built so that they can worship something. Stephen is saying, this is our history. This is where we come from. And he's pointing his finger while he's saying it. And having received it in their turn, verse 45, our fathers brought it in with Joshua as they dispossessed the nations who God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. Joshua, if you don't know, Joshua was Moses' apprentice. And there's a book named after him. Joshua, read it. It's the story of Israel coming into the promised land and all of the drama that entailed Until the time of David. Verse 46. Now David found favor in the sight of the Lord and asked that he might find a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built a house for him. Verse 46 and verse 47. David wanted to build a house for the Lord. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's, 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 all, it's kind of a touching story. David was feeling guilty because he was living in a nice house, and the Ark of the Covenant had been traversing in a tent for decades. And David says to the prophet Nathaniel, you know, I live in a house of cedar, and the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And I, 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 I think that's kind of whack, so I'm going to build a house, For the Lord and Nathanael at first he says hey great do whatever do whatever your heart desires It sounds good to me. I'll barbecue. Let's make it happen But then the Lord comes to Nathanael and says no tell David no tell David That's not the way that it's going to go tell David that I'm going to build him a house And that his son Solomon is actually going to be the one who builds a house for me and Solomon does that in first king first kings chapter 6 and the real reason why David was told no is given to us in 1st chronicles chapter 22 it's because he was a man of war and he had shed much blood so david wanted to build a house for the lord and the lord says you're a man of war you're a man of blood you're not going to build me a house i'm going to build you a house but your son is going to be the one who builds the first temple. This is, the, this is I know that like, some of you might be sitting here rolling your eyes going, man, this is boring. But friends, this is, this is the Bible. And this is the Bible. This is the same Old Testament that we're referring to here that Jesus in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus opened up the eyes of the two guys walking with him and showed him all of the places in the, in the scriptures. And at that time, all they had was the Old Testament showed him all the places in scriptures that refer to him. And now here, Stephen's doing the same thing. Not comprehensively, but kind of doing an overview, the history of Israel, and look at all the things that point to Jesus. Look at all of the little things, all of the characters, all of the little, the temple, the blood, the sacrifices, the prophets, all of these things that are pointing us to Messiah, that are pointing us to King Jesus. That's why we shouldn't just skip the Old Testament and read the New. This is viable stuff. So, moving on, verse 49 heaven is my throne. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. The earth is the footstool for my feet. So what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my rest? Was it not my hand which made all these things? That's Isaiah 66, verses one and two. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You're gonna gonna build me a house? You're gonna build me a temple? You're You're in a house of cedar and you feel bad that I'm in a tent? The Lord's like, listen, I appreciate the offer, you know, And Solomon will build the temple, but the temple will come to an end. There will be a time when the temple is no longer necessary. I mean besides The Lord doesn't need a house the Lord God Yahweh made absolutely Everything there. It made me think of this verse in 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 Job chapter 38 You know Job man if you know the story he had it rough, you know and by chapter 38 He's really having it rough And he cries out to the Lord, and and the Lord sort of like tunes him up, you know? I mean, there's almost like this sarcastic tone that the Lord takes with Job. He's like, do you you know who you're talking to? You're going to ask me why. You're going to ask me how with that sort of attitude. And he says to him in verse 38, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The God that we worship. I say this a lot because it's just a fascinating fact to me. When you go out and you see the moon or you see the sun, the Lord, the Lord God is holding the moon and the sun there. Every star in the sky, he's holding that there. Your heart beating right now, he's doing that. You hear my voice, you see my face, it's going through your cornea, your retina, it's going into your brain, you're, you're hearing me, out of all of that the Lord is doing. You're gonna build him a house? No. Go ahead, but the time will come when the, when the temple age will be done. So go ahead and build a house, but don't forget that heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. So what kind of house will you build for me? Or what place will there be for my rest? The Lord's not being arrogant. He's not being mean. He's just saying, pay, pay attention. Do, do this thing, but don't, don't take it too seriously. Because the, because the Israelites began to, again, they actually worshipped the temple itself. There's a Uh, I don't have time to to read it, but write down Matthew 23, verse 16 and following. Matthew 23, 16 and following. Jesus is, he's tuning up the religious leaders and he talks about the temple specifically. And he he says, you're taking the temple too seriously. You literally worship the building. Stop. Jesus says in John chapter 2, after he turns over all the money tables and they say to him, what, what, what sign do you show us for doing this? By what authority do you do this thing? And he said, I will destroy this temple in three days, raise it up. He was speaking of his body because he is the temple of God. He is now God's presence among humanity. And when he left, he said to his disciples, it's good that I go or the Holy Spirit will not come. And now the Holy Spirit indwells every single human being who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith, repents and puts their faith in Christ. They're born again. Believe in your heart, God raised them from the dead. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You will be saved and the Holy Spirit infuses you with his life and you are now a living stone in the temple of God. So the physical temple in Jerusalem had its time, had its place. Stephen wasn't being disrespectful, but he's, he's saying you've taken it too far. Heaven is the Lord's throne and the earth is his footstool. So verse 51, you men stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Stephen's defense of himself is now done, and now he tells the men who are about to kill him that this is, this is you. This is your history, and you have continued your history. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart people. You have uncircumcised heart and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit's as your father did, so did you. And which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, which means all of the Old Testament's pointed to Jesus. They killed the ones who announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels have not observed it. You stiff-necked people. Remember, Second Kings chapter 17 it's the it's the story. It, it says that Assyria came and took out the northern kingdom. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read a, a quick a quick verse here. Second Kings chapter seventeen, verse six says that the king of Assyria captured Samaria and took Israel away into exile and settled them in Halah, at Hebor, in the river Gozan, and in the city of in the cities of the Medes. So Samaria has been captured. Israel, Samaria was the capital of of the northern kingdom. They've been captured and they've been taken into exile. And then from verse 7 on is this long list of reasons why. Here's all the things that you did. This is what's going on. Verse 7, this happened because the sons of Israel sinned against Yahweh, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the statutes of the nations whom Yahweh had, who Yahweh had dispossessed from before the sons of Israel. This same, this, these, these accusations, these indictments, again and again, all the way down until we, get to, until we get to verse 14. We read this, this is what the Lord says, however, they did not listen, but they stiffened their necks. They stiffened their necks as their fathers did who did not believe in Yahweh their God. And in this long list of accusations, verse 16, he goes on to say that they even made calves and they made an Asherah and they worshiped all the hosts of heaven. That's Deuteronomy 4.19, the sun and the moon and the stars. So all of this idolatry, all of this rejection of Yahweh, all this trust in self and false gods and false deities and demonic worship, Israel fell into that. They were stiff Necked people It's the same language. Stiff-necked people, refusing to obey Yahweh their God and um, uncircumcised in hearts and in ears. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I, have no, I have no Jewish family. I have no experience really with Jewish culture, but I've done a whole lot of reading and I understand it to, a fair bit. And to tell an ancient Israelite that they were uncircumcised anywhere is about as big of a diss that you could throw down. That was their heritage. That was their national (laughs) insignia, so to speak. Like that was, they were proud of that. But what Stephen's saying is that you're behaving as if God has never spoken to you. You're behaving as if God has never touched your heart. You're uncircumcised in heart. Your ears are uncircumcised. You're behaving as if God has never revealed himself to you, and he's been revealing himself to you through all, of your, all through your history. And you rejected Joseph. You rejected Moses. And now you've actually rejected Jesus. Your fathers, who, who of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. They, in history, they they pushed away Joseph. He was the one anointed for a special place in God's plan, and his brothers sold him into slavery. Moses was one who was set aside for a special place in God's plan, and they cast him out. They thrust him aside, verse 27, and now they have thrust aside and even not just thrust aside, the but they have killed the one who is greater than Moses, the prophet who is like Moses, but greater. They've killed him. And this at this the men listening could listen no longer. Verse 54. And when they heard this, they became furious in their hearts, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The men are filled. They're enraged. The, the term there is that they're, they're rent with vexation. They're torn with anger. But Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. And friends, you know, I've, I've mentioned this periodically here and there, and I, and I think about it a lot. I think because you know, I, I see the culture turning the heat up on Christianity and Christian morals and the way this, the ways that Christians believe not only to live, but that we believe that the that salvation is only in one name only, the name of Jesus. The world hates that, the culture hates that, the devil hates that. And and that's that hatred is becoming a little bit more vocal and a little bit more intense than it used to be. And I and I also think about it because I, I speak publicly and I'm you know, one day someone's gonna rise up and Shoot a nine millimeter at me. It's happened, you know. So I think about it a lot, um, and I hope, you know, I hope not. I hope it doesn't ever happen. But I hope, friends, that if if the world, if if North America really starts putting the squeeze on Christians, that my prayer is that we'll have the same experience as Stephen. Notice what he does. He 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 looks up. They heard this. They're furious. They're running at him. They're gnashing their teeth. But he looked up. He gazed intently. Into heaven and Stephen literally did that he literally gazed into heaven Um, but I want I I want more and more of a heart and I pray for y'all and for the church at large across the world that we would be a people who who looks away from the circumstances, looks away from, you know, we have varying complexities and illnesses and problems and circumstances that, that quite honestly suck a lot of the times. And I know that that's true. And a lot of you come to me and you talk about those things and they're real and they should be shared and prayed over and, and we should help each other when we can. But it doesn't negate that the ultimate thing that we need is to, is to look up. This is real. This is real. This is more real. He's more real. He's eternal. He's forever. He's good, and he's wise, and even the things that hurt us, he's working it together for our good in the kingdom. Romans 8, 28, all things work for the good. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 15, 16, 17, These things that are this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond comprehension. Stephen was in the middle of literally getting his brains bashed out, and he looked up, and he saw the glory that was awaiting him, and he forgot about what was happening because he had his eyes set on Jesus. And to varying degrees, we can grow in that. Do you believe that? In varying degrees, over time, we can focus more and more and more on Jesus. And I've shared it with you before, and I'll only mention it briefly tonight, that my, my experience with this, you know, I'm not just regurgitating something that I heard a theologian say, and I was like, oh, that sounds nice. I'm gonna share that with the people. I actually experienced this when I watched my dad die. My dad died in my arms. And I watched him wither away for months and months as cancer devoured his body. He took his last breath in my arms and I knew that he went to be with the Lord in that moment, absent from the body, at home with the Lord. And so my dad's death actually became a moment of worship. It was really weird, but it was true. My mom and my wife and I were there in the room and we knew like his pain's over. He's stoked, so I'm stoked. I'm stoked that he's stoked, and so I'm stoked that Jesus did the work to make him stoked. My dad was a sinner, he deserved hell. He deserved punishment and and judgment, and he would have been the first one to tell you that, but because of Jesus and his righteousness and his perfection and his death on the cross, (whistles) my dad's in heaven, bro. Behold, Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, you read the Bible long enough, you see that, and you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus is supposed to be sitting. That's what he said. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus said, I'm gonna be seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he standing? He's welcoming home one of his kids. My dad saw that. So my dad's death became a moment and an opportunity of worship because the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, that death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus' death killed death. Physical death is still real. Boy, oh boy, is it real. But it's just a gateway into eternal life, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Not even death can hurt us. It can only serve us because Jesus is that good. And Stephen saw it. Stephen experienced it. Everybody else is livid. They're ticked. And Stephen is worshiping. He's rejoicing. Remember uh, early early on, whenever Stephen's first introduced to us, he's described as a man full of the Holy Spirit and grace. Listen to the grace this guy has. Behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of god but crying out with a loud voice they covered their ears and they rushed at him with one accord and when they had driven him out of the city they began stoning him and witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named saul and they went on stoning him but stephen was calling out and saying lord jesus receive my spirit and then falling on his knees he cried out with a loud voice listen to the grace He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. You know, I cuss at people whenever they park in front of my driveway. Not to their face. But I typically will like pace around in the house for 45 seconds. Like, dang it. freaking! I got to go out there and tell them. Not paying attention. It's so catty. It's so silly. My heart is so, so dumb. And I confess that a lot because I actually want it to stop. I want it to stop. I want grace to pour out of me, not, not vitriol and expletives. I want grace to pour out of me. This guy is being stoned to death, and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Jesus, please let us be those kind of people. They run at him and they kill him. And Stephen just quotes Jesus Luke chapter 23 verse 34 Lord Jesus receive my spirit Jesus said father into your hands I commend my spirit do not hold this sin against them Luke 23 34 as they're nailing him to the cross Jesus said father forgive them for they know not they know not what they do now I'm just just on a just a a quick technical note if you, you, know, you read the story of the Gospels and you go into Acts, and there was a lot of, there a lot of uh, confusion and a lot of like, working behind the scenes because the Jews didn't have the authority to actually uh, execute capital punishment. They weren't allowed to kill anybody. They had to get approval from the Romans, but here they don't. And there's a lot of different theories and answers and things like that. It, it seems as if you just read the text, it's probably because they just like snapped. And they didn't think about jurisprudence. They didn't think about Legislation they didn 't think about the right way or the wrong way they were just so livid mad they gnashed their teeth and they killed stephen and according to the Mishnah and the Mishnah is a collection of oral tradition in Jewish culture that they documented they wrote it down so that it would be written down and actually recorded and according to the to the Mishnah, you know this is speculative, but it, it speaks to the culture the way that a that a man would be stoned is the law required that there would be two witnesses who said, yeah, I saw him do it. And at the the word of two witnesses, a man could be found guilty. And that the first witness would stand the man up on a cliff that was twice the height of of a man. So what, 12 feet? 10 feet, 12 feet? And they would push him off. The first witness would push the man off. And if that didn't kill him, then they would go to the bottom and they would make sure that he was rolled over on his back. And the second witness would hurl a stone on his heart. And if that didn't kill him, then the surrounding witnesses would all throw stones on him until he was dead. And if that is how Stephen was executed, then verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen. He died slow, painfully, gruesomely. But Jesus was with him every step of the way. And what Stephen saw was not the stones. He saw Jesus standing up, welcoming him into the kingdom. And so I'll I'll close on this. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace every step of the way if we, if we look at our own history you know, last week and this week uh, the 54 verses of, of, of Acts 7 is Stephen recounting the sinful history of Israel not because he's being malicious but he's trying to wake them up to the reality and if any one of us dives into our history can we honestly say that we're innocent our personal history is littered with failure and sin is it not? But God's grace is stronger and is better. And and the the, the last takeaway that I, I think I'll mention is Stephen recounted Egypt, Exodus, the law, and he's not blaspheming any of it. Any of the characters, any of the working of God, he's not blaspheming any of it. He's venerating it. But we miss, it's written there right before us, we miss that, The first thing that Israel experienced was freedom in Exodus. They were released from slavery. Moses went in there into Egypt, and he got God's people out. They received grace first. They received freedom. They were brought out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 12. And then they received the law. Then they received the written, codified, on stone, 10 Commandments, The Levitical law and all the rest the character of the children that have been adopted by God God's character himself here are the rules here how it's laid out and you know the same is true for us we don't we don't get set free by the law we don't get set free by earning it we don't get set free by performance and merit we get set free first that's why James says faith without works is dead all he means by that is that if you're actually saved You're going to progressively more and more and more act right. It takes a long time. Some of us are a whole lot more dense than others, and it takes us a whole lot longer to get it. But we will become changed people. He changes because He, God, the Lord, changes your heart. The Holy Spirit is not a wimp, and when He gets a hold of you, you will be different. But you're not saved by being different. You become different once you're saved. We're given freedom we're given grace because Jesus is perfect, and we're given that record of perfect righteousness. And then slowly over time, we become changed people. Romans 5.8 says it very clearly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. They, we don't stop being sinners, and then Christ is like, okay, now that you've earned it, you can have the covering of my blood. It's the exact opposite. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10. If you have doubts with, about any of this, write it down. Romans 5.8, 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Isn't that what religion says? Love God, do this, do that, earn this, pray this many times a day, abstain from this, the religion of prohibition and you'll make it. Love me and I'll save you. That's not, that's religion. That's not relationship with Jesus. In this is love, not that we love God, not that we earned it, not that we merited it, if that's a, really a verb, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Ephesians chapter 2 Starts off brutal, and I'll close with this. <laughs> First, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which You formerly walked according to the course of this world and according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But, verse 4, some of the best words in all of Scripture. You were dead, verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, were given freedom first. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. by grace you have been saved. They were released out of Egypt, and then they were given the law. It's not that we love God, it's that He first loved us and sent His son. He did the initiating. He sent his son. He made the move. He did the work, and I don't know why it feels like we spend 40 years in the desert laboring, feeling like we're not home. Well, we're not, first of all. But we go through varying trials, and I can't ever tell somebody specifically why, usually. Sometimes I can't tell you why my dad got cancer. I can't tell you why he, why it killed him. But I can tell you, and I can remind myself we can trust Jesus because he went to the cross. He proved that he's in this for the long haul. He gives us grace. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're going home to him. Amen?